keep you too long. I know we're, we're coming up on the holiday here, but uh, Michael Bump, uh, doc, excuse me, Dr. Michael Bump, um, I, I appreciate you doing this, uh, joining me today. Um, and, you know, you're my first podcast back after a while. It's been probably three or four months since I've done one um, for various reasons. But uh, I'm really glad to get to talk to you today. You're, you're someone who... Um, whether you know it or not, is somebody who's very important in my life um, in terms of like my formative years as a student um, and sort of entering into the world of professional percussion playing. And we can we can get into all that and you can tell some stories if you want. But I'm curious before we do that, if you wouldn't mind giving me the nickel and dime tour of like, tell me about baby Michael Bump. Like what got you into playing percussion in particular? I know like, you know, for me, steel drums is my science project. Like that's the thing growing in the fridge when no one's looking. Um, but like timpani, timpani playing for you has been something that lodged in my brain from day one. I was like, man, this guy is bonkers about timpani. Um, and I'm curious if you could sort of lead me down the path a little bit of what brought you to that. <laughs> and that's a very vague question. So start start wherever you feel comfortable. Yeah, that is true, I guess, about timpani, isn't it? But um, so it, it goes back to, I mean, you and I share many commonalities, uh, one of them being Cleveland. You know, I was born and raised in Cleveland and um, <clears throat> North Olmsted, actually, on the west side. Um, so it really starts, uh, you know, in terms of uh, interest in percussion and such, it starts with my uh, my grandfather, um, actually, it goes back further than that, I guess. Uh, it goes back to Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock, ABC, the Monkees. You know, I, I mean, I was fanatical about watching the, the Monkees and specifically watching every move that Mickey Dolan's made on that show. And I wanted to do what he did. You know, I wanted to be a monkey, basically. So uh, my grandfather picked up on that. And he was one who a lot of our family have stories of uh, many of which I don't know, but the ones I do know is, uh, is he was lead cameraman for the Ed Sullivan show. And he was lead cameraman uh, when the Beatles came. No, so so hold, up he a had, hold up a second. Your grandfather, am I hearing this? Yeah. Your grandfather was the lead cameraman on the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles did their yeah. like U S. Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Um, he was he was the lead cameraman, and um, the story goes from family is that uh, he was get, trying to get uh, sound checks and or uh, camera spots, I guess, with all his camera uh, colleagues on the set, mm-hmm. and he couldn't talk to them back and forth. He couldn't communicate because uh, the Beatles, the guys, were doing uh, sound check and and you know playing a little bit on stage before the show, and he couldn't communicate. So he went up to Ringo apparently and he asked them to if they could you know hold off for a few minutes while he gets his camera guys spotted and Ringo didn't stop playing he just you know kept going with it and um my grandfather got you know really frustrated and he finally got him to stop and you know he didn't know Ringo again didn't know, know what my grandfather said so he thought he wanted an autograph so he scribbled something on a piece of paper and gave it to my grandfather, which was his autograph at that mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. And my grandpa, my grandfather was so pissed that he just crumpled it up and threw it away, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so so it, was, it was that sort of story, you know, that uh, lives in my, our minds, all of our family's minds. And he has many other stories to tell, but as eccentric as he was, he, he did inspire me to, to want to, 
play drums, or he at least picked up on that. So he ended up buying a set of drums for me at a garage sale in Cleveland, mm-hmm. and um, which was great. And, and I had uh, my first set of drums. They were Rogers Holiday, Red Sparkle, four-piece set. And um, so I didn't really know what I was doing, but um, I took some lessons from a guy that was at a music store at a strip mall in Great Northern Shopping Center in North Olmsted. And I went there every Saturday and, and my mom took me there and started learning the ropes or learning the basics. Um, and it was years later that actually I started taking more formally, more seriously lessons uh, from Jared Spears, who was a big, big influence on my life very early on, junior high and high school age. And many people might know Jared Spears as a composer of record for per- percussion, but mainly, you know, graded literature. Uh, but he's, he's written a plethora of things with, with emphasis on percussion, of course, as well as great band literature. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was one of my earliest influences. And so from there, I mean, you know, it went to, uh, you know, undergraduate work at Memphis State University. This well, was be, like. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Um, is it OK if I call you Michael or do you want me to call you Dr. Bump? You you say the word. I'll, I'll do it. I'll and you, you can call me anything except late for dinner. OK, <laughs> well, that's. Because you and I know each other too well, well so it's all good. And, and I apologize for talking over you with the delay here. But before we get into your sort of college stuff, like, um, what did your mom and remind me again? If I'm and sorry if I missed it, what did your mom and dad do for a living? Well, mom was a nurse. Uh, she was a, a RN in in the uh, you know Greater Cleveland area. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're speaking at Cleveland here. She was the nurse for the team doctor of the tribe back from 1970 oh, wow. to 73. Oh, wow. Yeah, speaking of things. So I was, I was thinking about that uh, just now. But dad was a lithographer. He was a printer for uh, uh, William Feather Company in, mm-hmm. in Cleveland, in Midtown area. And, um, yeah, that's that's what so, they did. Do I mean, so... Um... And again, I'm 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 gleaning information here. So if I'm if I'm if I'm too if I'm off the mark, tell me. But like, so you're you're there was art in your house. Your dad was a photographer, so there was somebody with an artistic mindset. And I think, and your mom being a nurse, like I'm curious, was there anybody in your? Did you ever mom and dad ever sit you down and be like, all right, listen, <laughs> seems like you're taking this pretty seriously. What are you doing? <laughs> what are we doing here? Like this is. You know, this is a generation, again, like this yeah. is a generation of parents who maybe are all, certainly older than my generation, but babies of World War II parents were like, the, the concerns in society were just different than they are now. There's, It's not so weird for a kid to be like, I want to play drums for a living and go study at college. But in your time, things that that wasn't as accepted. And, and so was there any, what were the conversations like in your house around that, that stuff? Well, you got that right. I mean, we did have the talk you know, about being in the arts, I guess, you know, or taking it seriously, I think. And that happened during my undergraduate, early undergraduate years. And that, you know, when I was, we had moved to Memphis right before undergraduate work. Um, So that's how the connection with Memphis State happened. But uh, dad took a new job with Holiday Press, Holiday and Press at that time. So we went down there. And um, yeah, so so, I mean, I, I started at Memphis State, got a band scholarship. So that helped financially and um but i didn't know what i wanted to do so i didn't declare a music major but i was taking lessons and, what, and did, lots you, of things were you just uh, undeclared as a major yeah i came in undeclared okay. um but i had this band scholarship so which was great so i was in marching band and 
took private lessons with uh, Frank Schaefer, which is uh, a dear influence uh, in my life as well. Um, and took theory. I took music theory, and I was in the wind symphony and percussion ensemble. I stayed. I kept my hands in all this stuff, but I shied away from officially declaring a major in music because I was feeling that heat, you know, from the family a little bit about you know you might want to you know just wait it out and feel things out a little bit, you know, consider the undergraduate experience as a cafeteria, so just kind of you know see what's out there. So I did, I did after a while, I declared a, a major in architectural engineering and then got a little, dis, not, not a little disinterested in that, uh, acoustical engineering, acoustical sciences, uh, pre-veterinary science, business marketing, the whole nine yards, man. I mean, I was, I was all over the map. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't until, you know, my junior year, I mean, all the while I was doing music, sort of dabbling and staying in it. But, uh, under, you know, I guess it was my junior year, uh, Christmas, actually. Uh, my grandfather, again, came down. He was with us for Christmas that year, asking the typical questions that you would ask. So how's life at the university? And what are you studying? What are you doing? And, you know, my answers was, oh, you know, we had a great wind symphony concert and we did this piece and that piece and on percussion i'm just doing this and i'm studying this piece and i'm learning how to do this and that with formality technique and, and what it was just great and he said yeah but so what what are you doing with your major and he said, i said well you know it's okay um i'm i'm, I'm in marketing right now and it's, it's okay i'm learning things and he just i can remember him so vividly he just like shook his head and kind of like did that to me he says you know don't regret it waking up one day at 62, what you do for a living, mm. you know, find what you love, do it. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. He said, you know, so don't regret it and don't do it just for the money. You know, don't listen to everybody else about, Oh, it's gotta be about the money. Mm -hmm. He said, but, you know, you'll find security in the things that you love. If you know, if you truly invest your heart and soul in it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as naive and, and arrogant as I was at that time in my life, I still took that one to heart. So in January, I marched over to the counselor's office, changed my major to music, and that was that. Never looked back, you know. And so one, so. After, you know, after that stage, I mean, I, I, I'm always, for myself personally, but also for like students who look at, you know, people they look up to, their their current teachers, um, you know, people who are playing in the field, and they think that this stuff sort of happens overnight, and that like mindsets change, and all of a sudden yesterday you were that Michael Bump and now today you're Michael Bump the music major it's like well yeah on paper but what did you actually physically do differently moving forward from that day like what how did that how did stuff click differently from you for you after you sort of were like now I'm officially a music major you walk out of that office and like actually Michael nothing's changed you've just signed a piece of paper you know like like so yeah, how, did really. you, how, how did you move then to the next day and the next day after that what did you do differently I just accepted my own reality, man. Well, I mean, because what I was doing the whole time up into my junior year when I had that conversation with my grandfather is I was invested in the music uh, environment there. I mean, I was subbing for Memphis Symphony at that time in the opera, that, you know, as a non-major, as a non-declared, just because it was fun. I, I enjoyed doing it. And my teacher asked me to do things like that. Um, got involved with drum and bugle corps. Uh, Memphis Blues at that time. So I started, you know, playing and, and writing and arranging. But I was always thinking about this as a sideline, something that was just fun to do and a hobby and that sort of thing. But nothing that, you know, my 
parents or family would ever agree to. Well, <laughs> so I just, also, you know, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, it was also too at that time. I mean, I, again, I'm I'm trying not to be like you know, you walked uphill both in the snow both ways each day, you know, with no shoes on sort of vibe. But like, there are just more people now for my generation of students to look to, to be like, Oh wait, you know, Colin Curry, you can play concertos for a living. Like when I was a student, Evelyn Glennie was the only one. And then if you were like, if you wanted to look to percussion ensembles, Nexus was like the only other group really that was in, in the U S anyway, in Canada that was touring regularly, that was like in our consciousness of like a possibility. Then you start to learn about Kermada and, and Amadinda and other groups right. later. But again, this was all pre-internet. Like I didn't know who Amadinda was until I met them at PASIC. And I was like, who's that big guy from Hungary? Like, you know, with a big hole in his shirt, yeah. you know, like, like, and I, <laughs> you know, and for, but for you at that time, it's not like you woke up every day and was just like, there's just countless percussionists out there. Like, doing this for a living it wasn't an obvious thing um and so like what but knowing where your path led you like what what propelled you into teaching like getting you know figuring that out and, and getting end, ending, ending up teaching at the university level um it was a lot of just i i want to um i want to take this more seriously you know it was that point that you know my grandfather said you'll figure it out and i that sentence just kept you know, looping in my head, you'll figure it out, you'll figure it out, do what you love. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I never really thought about that in a, in a serious mode in terms of something I could make a career out of. But uh, when he said that, um, I believed him, I, I believed him. And so I just, I just changed my attitude about it being some a secondary element of my life to being a primary element of my life, mm-hmm. and immersed myself and, and, and went for it, you know, at that, at that particular point. But it wasn't like I hadn't been doing it all along. I just accepted my own reality. Like I said, you know, I knew what I was doing all along. I just looked at it in a different light. So that was great. I'm glad he said that. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of everything, I, I didn't really have a, a, a clear direction in, in terms of music, uh, what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know exactly what the career would look like, how it would crystallize, things like that. Um, I admired Frank for being a university teacher, and it looked like a really great gig. He was able to synthesize that with his uh, principal chair as timpanist with the Memphis Symphony and the opera. And, you know, I, I was picking up gigs with them along the way, too. And I thought this could be really cool. I like this. I'm actually, you know, getting paid to do it, too, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um but I like the vibe. I, I love stepping out on stage and, you know, feeling that energy, feeling that heat. Um, and I wanted to just keep doing that. Um, so, yeah, the, the orchestra thing was was an attraction initially. And I guess because Frank was a timpanist, I became you know more and more interested in timpani. I started writing and composing works for solo timpani. I, I started thinking about the instrument as not solely as the role of accompaniment, as, as a voice of accompaniment, but what's the potential of this instrument becoming a solo vehicle? Um, mm-hmm. Here's one of the oldest instruments that we, uh, you know, gravitate towards, that we we concentrate and we study and perform, but yet it remains sort of an infant stuck in time, uh, you know, this voice of accompaniment with the orchestra situation. And people seem to just accept that image, that uh, role, and I thought, you know, there's got to be more to it than this. This thing's potent- this, The potential of this instrument is beyond this. I, I just feel it. I know it is. And I, I met John Haas uh, when I was still an undergrad, and he was already starting to dabble in this idea a little bit. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we started to talk a lot more and we became very good friends about it. He was commissioning um, uh, composers, you know, in the area, in the New York area and, and the East Coast and uh, making some things happen. Uh, Andrew Thomas and the like. So, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to, I don't know any composers. I, I don't know that. I don't have that sense of connection. And he's a little older than I am, I guess, but um, maybe I can write some things because I've always mm. writed, you know, written things and composed as, as uh, simple as they might've been at that time. Mm-hmm. So I did, I just started writing pieces um, and putting them out there and then performing them. And some people thought it was cool. Some people probably thought it was ridiculous, but that's all right. You know, but, you know, I ended up having a voice, you know, and finding a voice. And that was propelling me forward. That was energizing for me. You, you know? know, you're one of the, um, you were the first, you never actually, I don't think vocalize it specifically, but you were somebody who, one of the, one of the early teachers I had that sort of demonstrated that idea of like, yeah, no, like you need to learn how to have a snare drum roll and Porgy and Bess is important and all those things. But like, I also have this thing that I do when when the when the door's shut and no one's looking. I love this thing and it can be it's this weird timpani and I'm going to prepare it and I'm going to have this huge multiple set up behind me and like like yeah I remember as a, as a right out of high school coming in and see I think maybe like you did like an opening concert for the studio or something and you played and I was just sitting there like what it, have I gotten myself into like I had just been like the month before that I was doing marching band stuff. Like, so that was my first real introduction to college was dealing with Ohio state marching band. Again, wouldn't trade it for the world, but that was what I thought college music was. And I walk into this room and I'm like, all right, cool. What is happening? <laughs> and then we did like, after that, we did like a two hour long triangle master class, And you were like obsessing with us all about like the different types of harmonics you can get out of the triangle, depending on where you hit it. And I was just like, I think I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> You know, um, not because of, uh, like, sorry, go ahead. You didn't run away. Exactly. No, I'm well, glad. I, I didn't, I didn't know what I was supposed to know. And I didn't know what any of this was. I had just seen my high school percussion teacher, Joan Wenzel playing music for a living and ta- ta- talking about steel drums. And I was like, well, I guess that's what I should do. That sounds awesome. And so yeah. I, you know, and from, I'm curious just cause you, you said something about yourself as a, as a, as a student. Um, the sort of like going through, it wasn't until your junior year where you really sort of drilled down on what you were going to do. Like, has your approach to teaching, how has your approach to teaching changed as you see different generations of students come in? Sort of some, some of us all dealing with the same problems, no matter whether they were like Michael Bump in 1981 or Josh Quillen in 2000 or 1999, like, there's a sense, no matter how confident you are in your little pool, that when you get into this new one, you are lost for a second. And I don't exactly yeah. know when. I think it might have been when you left after my freshman year, I think, was the sort of come-to-Jesus moment I had to have with myself. Um, and I'm curious, like, how has your approach to teaching students changed over the over the years of, you know, seeing yourself in them, but also sort of being like, yeah, but... Yeah. I got away with that because of X, Y, and Z. And I know you're not going to get away with it. You know, like how, 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 how have you adjusted your teaching over time? Yeah. Um, Oh, by the way, I was just looking at this while we're chatting. Yeah, you did. You remember that? I do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Brought that with me this morning. It's my high school teacher. Yeah. I won't, I won't won't read it, but 
there's all your handwriting from way back in the day. That was oh your a thank you note after your after your audition. I will do a, my utmost to live up to your expectations. Yes. And and boy, if there was ever an understatement, huh? ever an understatement, well, you have done that times a million. Well, it's um that's for sure. Well, I I don't know I don't know if I've 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 asked my question clearly enough, but like what I'm now a teacher and I've been teaching now for 17 years and I'm I think back a lot to those first days at Ohio State, my first days at Akron, my first time in a pan yard, my first time in Trinidad, my first time in so percussion walking on stage with those guys and sort of like being aware of the responsibility I have as a teacher for these students who are coming in for their first day and being like, mm-hmm. how do I not mess these kids up? How do I set well, them up? Yeah. Know? I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, over time, and I guess it's only because of, you know, allowing yourself to let time teach you to become the teacher. And that is that if, as long as you constantly, and this takes a while for, it took a while for me to, to, to read, redefine what it is to be a teacher, to be teaching somebody. And that is, in fact, it's, it's sort of an oxymoron, really, isn't it? I mean, that if we consider ourselves the student and the other person or the group of people that are with, that are with, they're also students. We're all learning something together. And, you know, from my perspective, I'm sort of leading the discussion, but um, I'm learning how to communicate the same things that I'm already familiar with in a different way maybe a different language altogether, but certainly a different inflection, you know, um, in, in a lot of ways. So, you know, learn, even even if it's either learning the fundamentals on some level in a private lesson or it's learning a new work that uh, we're working with with a large percussion group or, or something in between, you know, there's a, always a different way to look, about, to look at it. But um, if you don't take it, quite so you know i'm the authoritarian figure and you're the the apprentice learning figure here and you know you you sort of like define these very rigid roles and then you just come into the to the group and you just you know okay what are you going to i i do it this way and you may you may well do this too is that you know pretty much every lesson i come into i always just say what are you going to teach me today you know i always ask them you know what are you going to teach me today and I, and I always do come away having learned something that I didn't think about before. Even if it's something I know, I've learned to look at it in a different light. I've learned to say it in a different language, not verbally, but mm-hmm. musically. You know, I've reconsidered the vehicle, the voice that we're practicing or working on that particular day. I've learned to reevaluate and reassess what is the sound of this and what is happening at this moment. And am I listening to it in a stereotypical, preconditioned way that I've grown accustomed over the years, or am I listening for it, listening to it with new ears? You know? how, how do you? One of the I'm sorry, I'm sorry if the podcast turns into me just asking for teaching advice <laughs> from you, but um, <laughs> like what I'm learning. One of the things I'm I have found the hardest to do is like at least where I'm at. I'm 43 now. Um, I've taught just enough to know to be dangerous, but I've taught just also enough to know I don't know anything. And I've got a long, long road to hoe here. I feel like I'm trying to get better at being like my bedside manner. Like if I was a, an oncologist, 
right? You got to somebody, you know, I see my students sometimes as patients. They come to me and they say, I want to be in a percussion quartet or I want to do what you're doing, which is play steel drums and drill steel bands in Trinidad. Okay. Let me take a look at your body and see, you know, let me, let me see you, you know, oh, oh my God, you have cancer, you know? And like, yeah. I don't know how to tell yeah. someone they have stage four cancer right now. And like, and I don't even know if that's my responsibility as a teacher, but I do sometimes feel like I've also been grateful. Like those moments with you, I think when you, when you looked me in the face and you were like, if you're not taking this triangle sound really seriously, then I, you're, this is going to be a rough profession for you. Like, cause it's not only just the triangle, there's the tambourine, there's the Pandero, there's the tenor pan, there's the tabla, like there's all these things. And, mm. I remember that being a tiny little come to Jesus moment of where I had to accept something. And I, Larry Snyder gave Bob Van Sice certainly gave that to me, but Bugsy Sharp did too. And so did Liam Teague. And so did Mia Gormandy. Like how have you, have you gotten better at delivering the bad news or do you just deliver the bad news and feel less bad about it because it's your job? <laughs> well, you know, Gary Cook has a great way of, of, of sort of, addressing that question i thought anyway you know he does it in his teaching percussion book all the way through and that is you know turn it up turn it around on the student ask them you know you know what does this feel like for you you know that's always a question that gary seems to come back to well you know what does this feel like to you how do you see this how does this feel inside when you do this you know x y or z and you know i guess if you sort of take that approach to them you're beast being asking them to be honest with themselves, you know, okay, here's what we want to do. Here's how I produce it. Here's how I would recommend producing it anyway. And let's try it, you know, and if it's within reach or if we can make modifications based on who you are as an individual, because you have to respect the individual with this, you know, there's a new way of, you know, maybe hearing this in, in the ways that you hadn't thought of. So if you keep yourself open as a teacher for that, then, you know, you can hear adaptability, potential for adaptability. But if it's beyond hope, if it's the stage four situation, you know, as you say, then you just, I mean, I've just asked the question to the student, you know, okay, now knowing what we know after our time, what do you feel? How do you feel? And nine times out of 10, maybe 9.7 out of 10, they always come to Jesus with this when they say, you know, I, I don't see it happening for me either. I see the road before me, I see what, you know, what's happening right now. And I don't see myself moving down this path in a successful way, not in the way I think success should be defined in music, you know, as a performer or as a teacher or whatever I want to do with this. And, you know, and then I say, okay, well, we've still had a great time and we still learned from each other. And let's, you know, if you want to remain now, not as a major, so if this was like trying to determine a major or not. Okay, so you're not a major. Let's remain active. You know, you can still play, right? You can still play pan. You can still play hand drums. You can still play in the chamber group. And, you know, let's let's work it and tailor it to your fortes and, uh, and find, you know, find happiness, find grace in what you're doing. Uh, it's not a loss. It's not a, it's not a, you're not a loser, man. You know, it's just, find where your your strengths are and you know capitalize on it that way i think uh, what you just said at the end really there was a, a green flag that popped up, up in my head like something that i've i think i've always felt and i've tried to express it different ways every year to students is like i don't actually have an interest in you being a professional musician at all like i don't wake up every day with this like oh my god i hope steve and john become 
you know, professional steel drummers. Like, I hope that you become a professional human being so that you can survive in whatever world you run into. Like, the stuff you're learning here is how to collaborate with people, how to admit your own weaknesses, how to pit your weaknesses up against somebody else's strengths so that the two of you can get through the next 34 bars. You know, like, there are all these, and then how that applies to the boardroom, how that applies to accounting, how that applies to gardening or whatever else it is you're going to do. Yeah. I think I think for me, where I'm at right now is, maybe this is my point, is like, I'm having a real insecure moment as a teacher just at 43 of like, especially post-pandemic, we talked a little bit about that, where a lot of the sort of field was changed, just bulldozed for a second, where like, no stages were occupied. Everybody's on Zoom, everybody's streaming concerts, everybody's editing videos, so it looks amazing, you got a nice background. Yeah, right. Now when people are, I'm noticing a little bit of some symptoms of that. Like, again, talking about the stage, like, I think there's a lot of stage one cancers where people are coming out of the pandemic being like, man, I got a little lower back pain, but I'll push through it, take some Tylenol. And then three years later, like, that was prostate cancer. Oh, my God, what were you doing? You know, (laughs) and there's enough of that. And again, I I have the same things. I'm not saying this to be glib or or presume that I'm immune to this. Um, I have my own trauma from that. But... I'm I'm very insecure. Like I see this thing and I just want to be like, you all need to, you need to have a hard moment of like, <laughs> sorry, you're not going to be streaming your concerts for the rest of your life. And you don't know how to practice actually. And I need to show you how to do that. So like from, I'm curious for you, like did, did you ever have any moments or what were the moments for you of like deep insecurity as a teacher? And like, where you really had, did you ever have to go back and sort of be like, I got to start over. I got to retool the way I'm seeing this. This was a complete disaster. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Every day, every day. I'm always thinking. <laughs> oh, no, I, am, really. I was hoping to look forward to something a little less <laughs> painful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is your, your 37 for me. So, I mean, I'm still learning. I'm, I'm absolutely learning. That's the, that's the absolute truth that I can tell you. The other absolute truth I can tell you, I guess, is that the only thing, the real big thing that I've learned in this profession and in life is that the only constant is change. You know, the only constant in our lives is change. I mean, cage was right. You know, that's, that's the truth of it. So if you can open yourself up to that, uh, you know, to that reality and not resist it, not fear it, uh, but embrace it and use it as a tool, as a vehicle for moving forward in life, then, you know, all things come together, I think, a little easier in the arts, in going to Hy-Vee or the grocery store at Kroger or Walmart or whatever. I mean, you know, driving down the street, man. I mean, everything's by chance. But, you know, ultimately, if you can just kind of relax yourself and loosen it to, to the point that, you know, hey, this was this was cool. This was meant to be. I've learned something and I'm growing as a person. So when I lay my head down at night, I'm a little different than I woke up this morning. And I'm good with that, you know. Maybe it was it was a really you know pissy day on some level, but whatever. There's going to be another pissy day down the road, and that's okay. I can I can work with that. But you know, I'll tell you, back in the days when I was teaching at Ohio State, you know, obviously being you know I was younger, but you know I was wound tighter than a clock back then, you know. And you know I wanted everything to be perfect. I wanted everything to run. On time, all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, and, you know, I didn't want to screw up at all. So if I had a bad lesson with somebody, if I didn't have a good speaking day, you know, in the lesson or something or in the rehearsal or 
you know, whatever. I wasn't playing well in a studio class. I was thinking, that's it. You know, I've got to get out of here. I'm at Ohio State. I've got, you know, I'm not worthy. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just not worthy of doing this. And what am I doing here? They, things like that. But um, I just had to kind of grow into the to, and grow into life and, and realize that you can't be perfect all the time. And you can't be perfect to everybody, to all people all the time. Uh, you hear these cliches every day, but you really have to accept the reality of that and interpret it for your own um, to to make it work for you, you know. So I guess I guess that's what I've just done. I've just sort of learned to say, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to learn something today from these students, even if it's something I already knew, I'm going to look at it differently today. Well, yeah. I think about that that year at Ohio State. I, I, you know, as you're talking and sort of explaining your worldview, um, I'm also becoming immediately aware of how little time you and I actually spent together in the scope of your professional life and my professional life. Like, I only had a year with you, and my second year, yeah. my second year, there was uh, I think Michael Yuda had come in to teach, but he was only teaching some doctoral students. And I, I want to just go on the record here and say that I think that year, those two years in particular, but that year of guidance from you and then the sort of um, uh, void for a year, I actually genuinely want to thank you for what that forced me to do. Um, Had that year not gone the way it did, I wouldn't be in so percussion. I wouldn't have been involved with steel pan. I'm, you know, I'm not saying I would have been a drug addict and been in, you know, in the gutters, you know, behind a dumpster every night sleeping. But that sec- that year of sort of being my first studio um, and then sort of having a gun held to my head a little bit the second year and being like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Um, yeah. It changed my life in many respects. And I, I just want to, I wanted to just personally go on the record and say like, thank you for your time. And I wish that we'd have had more time together. I, I, you know, um, you know, and I, I, yeah. I, th- I think of that year also just like these little things sort of click into place of like, Oh, if I don't do this on my own, if I don't play with Andy and Rudy tonight at two in the morning and then go stagger into theory class and sleep through theory, no one's ever going to let me play in a percussion trio. Like that was sort of like, that was the calculation my 19 year old brain made. And I was like, well, fuck it. I guess that's what I got to do. And I just started doing it. And I was talking with Russ Hartenberger the other night about stuff similar to this. And he said, he was sort of being like, man, you want to know what's harder than starting a percussion group? Ending one. And he's like, it is so stressful to like call New York state and be like, we need to close our taxes, you know, (laughs) next, next is, you know, we're, you know, and and so anyway, it's like, for me as a kid looking to them, seeing this thing, it just seems so obvious and inevitable. Like, man, Russ, Gary, Bob, all those guys, they had somebody hold a gun to their head in some way at some point in their life, which made it clear to them that the only way it was going to happen is if they did it themselves. And yeah, I, I, anyway, take all of that for what it's worth. I just really wanted to put it out there in the world that like, I would not trade that time at Ohio state for anything. It is literally one of the reasons I'm sitting where I'm, where I'm sitting. So there's no question. I just wanted to say that out loud. (laughs) I mean, reflection is always, you know, an easy thing to, uh, Mm -hmm. to try to define, I guess, after the fact, but I can say with absolute certainty that I can remember first meeting you and your mom 
and you know checking out Ohio, Ohio State. And I can remember the audition, uh, the whole the whole bit. And I remember hearing about your interests and your passions. You were a serious dude, you know. I mean, even back then, you may have not known exactly what you want to do down to the you know the the hue of the color of your life, but you you had an agenda, man. You knew that you know whatever you were going to do, you were going to take it seriously. And it may change; it probably will. But you'll roll with it. You'll figure it out. But you're going to take this really, really seriously. So that was just who you were, and you probably still are today, you know, to a fair degree. But I, I was, and I was always admiring that. And I knew, man, if I could spend some time with this human being, I think we can make something really, really beautiful happen as an artist. I think that. You know, this is what you want to do. You may not know exactly what you want to do with it, but you had a sense of it. And, you know, this to me, I took great pride in, you know, sort of welcoming you into this world. But um, watching you then matriculate well after I was out of the picture. I mean, you, Andy, you know, uh, Rudy, all those guys, you know, we're, we're going to make it happen on one level or another. I just knew it. I felt it. And I've, and like you, I mean, in these 37 years of time, there have been pockets and there continue to be pockets of students that are just like that. I, I just had uh, actually lunch a uh, day before yesterday with another former student, a Truman student, Megan Arns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Dr. Megan yeah. Arns, excuse you. Dar- I, I should say yes. I, should, I stand corrected. This is true. And and so I, you know, we had time to kind of reminisce and catch up on things like that. But you know, she was part of another pocket of students. She and Adam Grow and, and a bunch of other Truman students alumni that uh, you know have already shown them themselves in a positive way professionally. But you could see it from the first meeting, from the first first day they stepped on the stage in honor band from high school with Megan. You know, for example. But uh, you just know it. And you were among those types of people. There, there was a, a block, a, a crowd that moved in like manner, you know, a flock, if you will, that uh, you knew somehow they were going to flesh themselves out as artists, uh, either professionally, I mean, making a paycheck out of it or not. Didn't sort of That was sort of an irrelevant thing. But they were going to find themselves as artists. And, and indeed, you have. You found your voice. And there's not a day that goes by, Josh Quillen, that I don't remember how proud and and I continue to be of you. It's absolutely true. Well, it, you're, you're making it, you're making it happen, man. It warms my heart, and I and I there's not a day that goes by I don't think about about you and and, and every one of my teachers. But um, you know, the one thing just to to speak to what you were talking about, I think the one thing I was imminently aware of from day one at Ohio State, and I would say the marching band had a lot to do with this because. Um, the military aspect, the militaristic, and you, but you were in drum corps, so you sort of you can identify with this on some level. Like, but the way that Ohio State Marching Band was run was very like a like a like a military. You had a uniform inspections, you had to be you had the, the chair steps, like the whole nine yards, you know. Um, yeah. And I was not a super in shape person, like you know, but you had to be in shape to do that stuff. Um, I never played traditional snare drum that well. Like my rudiments weren't all that great. But the one thing it forced you to do is like, well, if you're going to get in this band, you're going to have to work harder than everybody else. And so I was like, well, okay, I guess that's what I got to do. You know, like I'll get in there and it's like, it's not that my paradiddles ever got better than anybody else's. I just worked hard enough to sound as good as I needed to, to get into that band and to survive in that band. I get to Ohio State 
percussion studio. I see Andy Beal and he's just like, like his hands are moving a million miles a minute. And I'm just like, if I'm going to play with this guy, I'm going to have to practice four more hours than he does. All right. I guess that's what I have to do. You know, so off to McDonald's I go and then back to the practice room, you know, and it wasn't a set. It wasn't, it wasn't like there was this desire to be a solo musician. I was just trying to keep my head above water, Michael. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, like, I was drowning around with people who could play circles around me, and I had never drowned before. I'd never been in that deep water, <laughs> so you know. And but there was a big support but, network there. But you had the self discipline mm-hmm. to, you know, to make yourself work in that environment. Some people don't. Some people are scared off by it. They're too intimidated, and they look for something else that's a little less. Uh, you know, intimidating, I guess, but you have, and you continue to, I'm sure have that self-discipline. That's just part of your DNA. You're wired that way, you know? So you, you made it work because your personality, your, your self-discipline um, carried you through that, you know? Well, I think some of and it you too, adapt. Yeah. And I think some of it too is in, and you did this, Larry did this, Bob did this, like the, the stakes are actually fairly low, for pushing through that intimidation. Like you think there's a big scary wolf on the other side. What there is, is a marimba solo, (laughs) you know, it's like, you can work hard and do that. And if you get out there and miss some notes, no one's going to die. Like just miss less notes next time. It's it's like, once you get to the, you know, playing Carnegie hall, like, yeah, I want to, I want to play a sold out show at Carnegie hall. I've now done six. It's not scary. It's just another wood paneled floor, like any other stage at Truman state or the university of Akron. And I was like, oh, wait, yeah. that's, all, that's all this was? Oh, what was I scared about, <laughs> you know? And then it's like, well, now I want to play a stadium. I want to see how scary that is. And then I'll bet I'd get in front of a giant stadium and be like, well, this is cool, but kind of really can't see anybody. And it's just all loud. And well, that wasn't very fun. Yeah, <laughs> <No>? <laughs> yeah that's, I mean, that's, that's growth over time, man, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what it is? It's growth over time. And you just learn that this is part of life and it's not to be feared. It's to be embraced. And it's not, a, you know what it is. I mean, ego doesn't allow us to open these doors for us too often. We're too worried about centricity, self-centeredness. And we're worried about how people interpret and view us. We're worried about what other people think, you know, as an artist, like that's, that's, man, that's like, that's the cancer, isn't it? I mean, you can't worry about what other people think. You've got to just, what's in there express it do it don't worry about it it's not about everybody else it's about the individual what do you have to say and you know i mean if you can get to that point as an as an artist and as a human being regardless of what you're doing really but if you can get to that point where as an individual you feel comfortable in your own skin and completely express you know what you feel then that's you've arrived, man. I mean, think, I think that's life, right? Well, it's also like when you're talking about like, well, you shouldn't care about what other people think. And you know, my, my therapist actually called me out on this a while ago. Like she was just like, you do realize that nobody thinks this, you think they think this. So it's really what you think about what you're doing. And I'm like, bingo. Oh my God. <laughs> you know? So, so like stop blaming it on what other people think. That's actually what you think. And you need to get over that shit because you're, yeah. you're questioning everything about what you're doing. And again, the stakes are low. So, like, all right, I want to do. I want to record a steel drum solo. All right, do it. What if you just recorded another I, one? What if you then you record? That's an absolute. One, you know, <laughs> that's an absolute truth. That is an absolute truth. And it's taken 
I mean, it's taken me a, a long journey and, you know, yeah. And in a lot of eyes, in my own eyes, you know, I screwed up a lot along the way, you know, I, I made some poor choices, you know, but then I've, I worked from those, you know, everybody does everybody that's life, you know, nothing is a perfect science, but if you take the moment, take the opportunity to embrace it and learn and grow, expand, become the individual that you are and be able to be freely expressing it, then that was a good moment. That wasn't a, ne a negative moment. It was actually a very good moment, you know, because you've learned something from it. So, you know, go forth and conquer, my friend. That's the way it works. Well, yeah. let me ask you just in the, uh, out of respect for your time here. I just have like one more question for you. What, where do you see, I mean, I think I would have, you know, when I joined so 17 years ago, we had ideas of what we felt was missing from the percussion world. Uh, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of percussion chamber music rep being developed regularly. There was a lot of chunks like Steve Reich's stuff, Zanakis's stuff. Then there's uh, a, a bunch of, you know, paranoia. There, there's hand, there's pockets of things, but it wasn't like there was a constant stream of stuff happening. And so we really wanted to change that. And so we got in there and started commissioning a lot of works. I think there's ideas about where I felt like the steel drum world was going. And in general, like, yeah, the path has been, in that direction, but it's totally different than what I imagined. But like for you, Michael Bump today, sitting here on December 23rd, what has surprised you about where the percussion world is going and where do you personally like today, you're going to plant your flag and be like, this is where it's headed. Just, and, and I know it's a hypothetical, but like, where do you think it's going? Percussion is um, un still undefined. I, I don't know that there's a specific direction that it wants to go or that it is going, but I do think, Again, it's an overused word, but I think the potential is phenomenal about what, you know, the percussive arts has in front of it, what's in the windshield of, of percussion performance and education and composition. Um, you know, it used to be in, in my younger days that the idea, the concept of integrating electronics with percussion, for example, was in absolute infancy. It had just been born, basically, and it was awkward it was cumbersome uh the concept of it required uh two phds in electrical acoustics you know i mean you couldn't really do it on your own you had to have a team of 20 people to try to help you perform this work with timpani and electronic accompaniment or something you know i mean putting on jean pichet's steel of the thunder was like an act of god it, you had to bring bring this entourage of stuff to make it work most of the time real to real tapes the whole bit but today, I mean, you know, thank God, I mean, the, the technology has opened so many doors, you know, even just the, the nature of commissioning a person to write a work for percussion. Um, and nobody, you know, um, hesitates to ask, could I ask you to consider a work for um, tabla and electronic accompaniment, electronic environment or something like that? Oh, yeah, I've had all kinds of experience. Sure, I can do that. When do you need it? You know, I mean, this is not an, a ridiculous request from a commissioner. Um, and so, I mean, the, the potential of, of new music in percussion performance is like it's never been. And it probably tomorrow, it'll be even more so. So that to me is incredibly exciting what's going on in composition for percussion, both as a solo uh, vehicle as well as a chamber voice. Um, sky's the limit, man. And, and, you know, isn't that the great thing about what we do, though? I mean, you, you could wake up at the age of 92, you know, hopefully we both do someday. And we wake up and we go, oh, my gosh, I have not, I have not 
learned how to play Murdangam. I've got to go. Sorry, I've got to jump out of bed, skip the coffee. I've got to find one. How do I learn I just, this? Where do I, I go? I played my first parang parang steel drum piece the other night. I was like, oh my god, where? What have I been doing? This this is all in six eight with a twelve eight bell pattern under it. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> oh, you know, you know. As an aside, you know, we just played for our holiday show. We had a, a, a Christmas tunes, obviously, but mm-hmm. we played uh, Las Colinas. Mm-hmm. You know this mm-hmm. piece? Yeah, yeah Tristan. Uh, uh, based off a parang piece. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. thinking similar styles, you know. Yeah, it's very, yeah that's but, absolutely uh, praying, yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful, beautiful piece. And it works so festively, you know, with, with mm-hmm. the program. But anyway, I, I digress. But the, the uh, yeah, I mean, just the enthusiasm for playing has never been um, finer. I mean, never been more intense as far as I can fit, feel it. And that coupled with the fact that the education of students is so the, the net has been cast so wide and the accessibility of, again, technology and learning things, if it's YouTube or if it's some other vehicle through the computer um, and the immediacy of that information, um, if you can filter out that which is primary to, from that which is secondary or not even accurate, you know, given that equation, element of the equation, I mean, the accessibility to information is unparalleled. Yeah. So students are learning at younger ages and they're retaining more because it's at in their faces 24 seven for better or worse, it's there, you know? And so the retention of information is there and they're learning quicker uh, and they're adapting uh, to, to performing the idea of performing. They're not as intimidated at performance uh, because they feel they've got more information and abilities within them, both mentally and physically, than they ever have before. So the new generations coming up are less intimidated about the idea of, of experimentation and about getting out there and performing. Uh, that's exciting. That, that, to me, is energizing, too. You can see it through PAS or WGI or, or you know any other vehicles that we're, we're familiar with, or even new vehicles that we're not familiar with. And, you know, you guys are a part of that as anybody else. I mean, you know, the, the nature of so, you know, working on new works and trying, stepping outside the box, uh, you know, getting out there and presenting pieces in new environments, not just the pieces themselves, but the environments themselves being new and uh, creative. Your audiences, you know, you're casting a wider net to audiences. It's not so specific or, or cliche, you know, in terms of your audience. It's that sort of thing is going to take us to the next level. One of the, that's, I mean, that's the kind of thing. I mean, it's one of the things inter- that's, that I, I'm encouraging my students to think about right now. But I and I, but I think evolutionarily speaking, it's kind of hard for them to do this. I mean, I didn't start thinking like this until now. But like, what are the things that you track now as being like, man, this should not be the way it is? Where can you actually affect that change, and how patient can you be to wait and see where that change yields? 10 years down the road. And when I was in school, I remember sitting, I remember the four of us and so sitting around being like, why is everybody only playing for the PASIC crowd? Like <laughs> that's my grandma's not going to come to PASIC and it, nobody pays to go there. I mean, I mean no, nobody, I mean, you don't get paid to pay, play PASIC. So what are we going to do about that? <laughs> like, yeah. are we, how are we going to play for people outside of that? And so then you have to start talking to people that aren't percussionists, which forces you to have to talk to people like you're not a nerd percussionist. Like you actually have to explain things to a human being who has no context for why you're playing a pitched flower pot. They're just like, I have a flower pot. 
you know, and then, then you've got to convince them to come back a second time. And I would say that is something that's, that's changed. I would, for me too, something that always felt weird was the idea that like you have a tenor pan sitting behind you, the idea that there was percussion and then there was the world musics and then there was orchestra. And I, there was a part of me that's just like, wait a minute. I mean, Europe's part of the world. Shouldn't we consider orchestra world music? You know, like, yeah, I don't know. The violin used to be a folk instrument, still is in most of the world. Like, <laughs> what if we just call yeah. that a world music ensemble too? And then what if we gave the orchestra the same funding that the steel band got? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and so like, but like that, that to me is the sort of weird uncanny valley that I still perceive in the education system and also in the general public. Like, it's not like Carnegie Hall's putting on massive tabla concerts because the mass public is probably going to come see the Rockettes before they're going to see, you know, but that's just where we're at right now. And so like, I'm, I would love to see our students that are coming up now somehow change that in the way that you've changed your field, the way that so has attempted to change our field. Um, but it's, it's something I wasn't always tracking as a student. It was just sort of like, that's weird that we're only playing for PASIC. And then you sort of like move on with your life and you don't think about what you can actually do to change that. Yeah, you have to ask the question, you know, why do we exist, right? I mean, you know, are we existing for PAS or are we existing for, is there another reason why we even come together at all? Um, I remember uh, doing an interview years ago. This was like early 90s before Ohio State. I think I was still at Old Miss, actually. And um, I had the guys down to do uh, like a three or four day residency uh, on campus. Um and part of that, I, I, I put together uh, an, an interview for uh, PAS, or Percussive Notes, that particular year. And it was just by chance. I just we, we were talking over lunch one day, and I put a cassette tape recorder and press spread, and that was that. So made that an interview. But one of the things that came out of that is, you know, why do, I remember asking uh, the question to, um, to John, who was, uh, you know, obviously alive still at the time. And I said, you know, why do you guys exist? And he, and he said, you know, we exist for ourselves. And he said, we exist for ourselves. You know, we, we play for ourselves. We enjoy the communication that we share with each other. We started out as an improvisational gathering. You know, we just cook, took the collection of instruments and sound sources that we owned, you know, in and around, uh, you know, the Rochester and area that, that they were at the time. And um, we would just gather and uh, set things up, put them on the floor, put them on the table, put them on the wall, whatever. And we would just listen to what each other had to say. And these improvisations, these you know, fantasias would, would have just materialized. And that was the birth of Nexus. You know, we started to codify them in different ways, but you know, we definitely created for ourselves and for our own interests at all. And those who are interested will come. You know, but, you know, at that time, it maybe it was a little, little different, you know, but at least where you're concerned, you, you guys seem to be, you know, very interested in, in absolutely creating your own vehicle and your own voice through many of the same ways, the Genesis ways that Nexus, Nexus probably adapted. But the, the, the tailor of this is that for you guys, it seems that you're listening and aware of a larger communal global audience that they're as valid as learned percussionists, as learned teachers and pedagogues and all this. It's a, you're not just there for that. You know, it's you're there for the world. You're there for the community 
that we with that we exist in and live in at large and for that that you play you know for them you play you know you perform and um and i think that that's yeah right right on i mean that's beautiful yeah i mean i I talked with russ the other night um he was saying i was just asking him like you know at the tail end of of your time with nexus like what what are you all playing and he's like we're going back to improvs we're just doing all improv shows again and there's a tiny part of me that felt like you know, the idea that after an evolution, a lifetime of 40 or 50 years of playing with each other, you just land right back where you started. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of hope the same. I don't know what that's going to look like for so maybe in 40 years, all we're doing is playing amid the noise and barely being able to play so-called laws of nature. And maybe that's what we end up doing. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I think for everybody, I just think for any, anybody who's coming up, um, you know, Nexus didn't start because a government grant from Canada it started because Russ and John and Robin and all those guys got in a room the first day and started doing things. And then the next morning Russ texted or called or wrote a letter to, to Robin and was like, I just want to do it again on Tuesday. And they did it again on Tuesday. And now here we are, you know, it's like history is not made in years. It's made in days. And Nexus has been around for what, 40,000 days or whatever, whatever 50 years is, you know, more than that. I mean, it's, it's days. And I, and that's the thing that's hard to impart on students. And I, and I, and I'm just grateful for, for whatever you said to 19 year old Josh Quillen, um, with that sort of made my brain go and like sort of (laughs) see the, see the world as something that I had to, um, hold onto and, and actually ride rather than wait for the bus to come pick me up. You know, like, something you said is something in the class of people that you surrounded me with. Um, you know, that's teaching too. surrounding your, your students with other good students is part of teaching. Um, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And to expound on that, I, I gotta say that, um, you know, for prospective students, when they come in and they ask me, you know, so what's Truman's percussion program like and all this, and I said, well, I learn a lot. I said, I, I come in here and I learn a lot from them. And in turn, they learn from each other. And I said, and it's not a stretch of truth to say that they probably learn more from each other than they do from me on any given day. Because the family is tight. You know what that's like. You know, you, you've you got a studio of like-minded individuals or, you know, they've, you know, they've been, you know, sort of crafted in that mindset. But their enthusiasm for what they do in the halls and in the, in the practice rooms and the rehearsal rooms you know, is infectious. And the next day they want to learn more and they want to soak in more. But the point is, is that they learn from each other absolutely as much, if not more so most days than they do from me. I'm just hanging out, you know, but it's, it's just really a beautiful thing to, to listen to them. And then to listen to them in the way that they channel that enthusiasm, that information, you know. So oftentimes it it, it manifests its form and it manifests itself in the form of, uh, rehearsal where we're taking a particular section. We had a particular agenda in mind for a chamber rehearsal that day. And I have an idea in my mind about how I want this interpretation to go. I want, this is the landscape. This is the, the acoustical landscape that I'd like to hear in this particular section. So I go into the rehearsal with that idea for my coaching. And in turn, they've got all together a different idea. And so I listen to this and, you know, right then I just like bite my tongue I don't say what I was going to say. I say, man, that's cool. Can you guys flesh that out just a little bit more and go back to this, this, and this? And then, you know, 
what I was going to say never materializes, mm -hmm. but that's the language, isn't it? I mean, you know, you just let, let them for, because now they have onus, you know, they own that piece. Now it's no longer a piece by Bud Bazelon or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, they own the piece. They're just transmitting the, they're interpreting the information, the data. And now it becomes, you know, the Truman graduate quartet, you know, piece or well, so percussion, you know, whatever. Sort of you're speaking to it. I mean, teaching is a two way street. I mean, there's, there's days where you are responsible for all the energy in the room because of whatever, whatever happened that day. It's like, okay, my job today is to do the heavy lift. But then sometimes when your students come in and they do the heavy lift, like I'm actually a better teacher. My job is actually to help them craft the way they make ideas and the way they have ideas. Like that's super fun as a teacher. It's the days when I have to come in and do the heavy lift where I'm like, I just want you all to know how unfun this is to do this heavy lift. You know, like there's a, there's a great, I don't know if you were at the, uh, the John Beck retirement party at PASIC years ago. Um, after he was retiring from Eastman, they threw like a, a reception for him and he got up and gave a toast. And he said, you know, some of you, a lot of you say I'm not the most inspirational teacher. And he's like, just so you know, you all didn't kill it every day either. Or like you weren't the most inspiring every day either. And he was like, I'm looking at you, Gad. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's like even Steve Gad comes in, came in as a student some days and was just like, I didn't practice anything and I got nothing. And so John Beck had to do the heavy lift with Steve Gad, you know. Yeah. And he's like, I just wanted you yeah. to know that that was not fun. Teaching Steve Gad was not fun that day. And it's like, yeah, that's, as a teacher, that is that's totally true. And I, I, I wish as a student I would have been more aware of of that because I would have. I would have come to the table. I was afraid to come to the table with ideas sometimes, especially with Bob. I remember being like, no, I do not bring an idea to the table with Bob because I'm just going to get flamethrowered. Well, as it turns out, <laughs> Bob just has a lot of big ideas, a lot of strong ideas. And he's not ashamed to sharpen his axe against yours if you have if you have an idea, you know. But it wasn't yeah. until my end of my second year where I started being like, actually, Bob, I don't hear it that way. And he's like, hmm, buddy, I think you're wrong and you're an idiot, but I'll let you do that, you know. <laughs> you know, then it was yeah. like, that was like, oh, wow, okay, that's what, oh. And then I joined So Percussion, and those three guys are constantly forcing you to have to, like, defend your thesis every day of your life. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, my, well, God, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, I mean, it just, it just compels you to solidify your convictions, you know. So if you do believe in a, a certain path or a certain sound or a landscape or my, you know, then defend it, you know, how so? You know, don't just say that, but tell me why, you know, prove it through your sound, your voice, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then I'll either still believe, I'll either still disagree with you mm -hmm. or I'll allow you the opportunity because you're, you have a conviction to that sound, right. to that path. But your disagreement, cool because that, yeah, but your disagreement is going to be logged in the record, the public record, and then you can do with that. Like, <laughs> I was just like, take all my information, use it or don't, but I want it. I want the public record to show that I have given you this data. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Whether you use it or not is another story, but I want it to be shown that I told you so, that I did not think this was a good idea. You know. So 15 years from now, we will talk about this again. You just don't know when, you know, that's that sort of thing. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, this has been really, really fun and I hope to do it again soon. Um, please thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can you just real quickly give folks like, is there um, a place where they can find out more about, about the, uh, the studio uh, at Truman state and sort of what you're up to now? Yeah, um, Facebook's always a great vehicle. Um, we have a website. The Truman Percussion Program has its own 
website up there on Facebook. Um, I I have, you know, Facebook stuff there. Um, you know, and they can always just contact me directly here within the Department of Music. Uh, you know, I've got, you know, the email thing going on and, and everything else. So the usual vehicles, the usual tools. Um, yeah, yeah. If anybody wants to chat or or whatever, that this is where I'm at. So sure. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think that's all I needed to say about that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Have a good holiday break and get some rest. And I hope that we can cross paths again here. I don't think I've seen you post pandemic in person yet. Uh, and I would love to get together and, and cheers and, and catch up in person. Josh, you too, man. I can't tell you how, how fun this has been. And and I, again, I, I don't want to over, over express it, but I, I, I really am so very proud of you, you know, not to sound condescending, but it's just so proud of what you've done and, and finding your voice in the, in the world and uh, you and many, many other students, of course, too. But thank you for your music is all I'll tell you. It's just thank you very much for your music. You are quite welcome. And I and I thank you. I feel like my life, I'm, I'm like a, one of those disco balls that like I was a blank disco ball at the beginning. And then my mom put a little make little, little reflective square on it and then Joan Wenzel put one on it then Larry Snyder then you put one on it then Cliff Alexis and now I'm spinning and I don't have it all filled up yet but I'm really I'm really grateful to have had the people in my life who have helped to sort of pinball me in a in a path and so from the bottom of my heart thank you Michael have a safe holiday break and uh and we'll talk soon all right all right man be well it's great to see you Josh likewise take it easy all right all right cool bye-bye bye-bye Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner, builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at Mango Chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango Chow, clothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.